All right, welcome back to um, episode two of Grant. Um, we just ended off. Grant moved back basically from Portland, Oregon, Oregon to St. Louis, Missouri. Missouri, and he is he had made a go of it out selling um, or farming. I mean, in Portland, right? And then he well, no, he was pretty he was pretty bad about it. He Grant was not gifted in any civilian occupation. Okay. And then he moves back to St. Louis where I believe his um, wife's family was? Yes, the father-in-law had a, a, a plantation there. Alright, and once again, I'm Philip And Robert. Alright, and this is episode two of Presidential Profiles. Go ahead and introduce our readers to the story again. What's happening? With so, Grant. so, so we uh, reviewed Grant's early life, his uh, first army career, so to speak, as a young officer at St. Louis, where he was married to uh, Julia Dent. Uh, his uh, rather meritorious service in the Mexican-American War, uh, where he was promoted to captain. His uh, stint as a frontier officer in California and in Portland, his attempt to set himself up as a, as a f uh, merchant and farmer in Portland, uh, his, ignominious, uh, <coughs> his ignominious cashiering from the U.S. Army, his difficulties with liquor, uh, his move back to St. Louis, where his father-in-law helped him get set up in a little farm. The difficulties Grant had, part of which were that uh, the father-in-law was willing to provide Grant four slaves, and Grant refused to treat the men as slaves and paid them and treated them as uh, free labor, uh, free being non-slave labor, manumitted uh, African-American slaves. Um, and financially the farm just wasn't working. Uh, I think Grant's wife, who was a devout Methodist, probably was working on his alcoholism. They were having their kids then. And when Grant realized that he couldn't make a living selling produce and other farm products, he began selling firewood, which was a, uh, an occupation he could keep up on his own without without the, the assistance of the of the four men. Was it more profitable for him than, uh, or about the same as farming? Um, I think it provided more cash. Okay. And at that point they realized they had to have some cash for kids, you know, clothes. And it's just one that. guy going out harvesting firewood. Well, he probably cut down the trees. He might have just, you know, rode around in a, in a buggy and picked up old tree stumps. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how he did that. So, uh, that didn't work out for him, so he went back to his father, who had a successful tanning business. And tanning is taking uh, hides from slaughtered animals and treating them with tannic acid, hence tanning. And uh, then they can be turned into leather and, and rawhide. And, and well, rawhide's not not treated leather, but they can be turned into leather, and then they can be made into harnesses, boots. 
And and his he's in his thirties at this point. Or yes, early yes. mid thirties. Yeah, probably early thirties. And was his father? He had gone to West Point, so I mean. They so had dad is very dad is very distraught. You know, uh, he pulled in a lot of political favors, getting uh, Hiram now Ulysses into West Point. Um, they still called him Captain Grant in honor of his uh, Mexican War service, but. He was a he was a very so so businessman. He he, people would come in to order things. He would take the order. You know, apparently, you know, clerk with the apron and the sleeve galusses. You know, and the little pencil behind the ear. And he'd take the order. And he'd always mess it up, or he'd forget to tell his brothers about it. So you know, the customer would come back and the order wasn't right or the order wasn't there. However, Grant was uh, very apparently very physically strong and was very useful in tanning business as stock clerk and in treating the leather, you know, because of these big cowhides that you're swirling around in a big vat. Okay. Now do we But he hated it. He hated the smells. Okay. What what was Grant's so Grant felt like he hated the didn't never wanted to take over the tanning business. Was Grant viewing himself at this time as being a bit of a failure? Did he feel like he was making progress? He was just looking to find his niche? What was his mindset? Did he want to get back into the military? Grant's internal life is always something of a mystery. He always had a very, very uh, phlegmatic nature, very methodical, very (coughs) self-contained, not particularly expressive. He was a very quiet man. So we really don't know that much about what he thought. We know uh, some from some of the correspondence between the sisters-in-law. They didn't like Julia. Uh, One of the brothers was extremely jealous of Grant. Uh, Another brother uh, had tuberculosis or or some wasting disease. And uh, he was more or less the business brains. He liked the dead. He got along with the dead. He liked the business, but uh, his health was failing. The so other brothers know. saw Grant as an interloper because Grant was the oldest, you know. So there was a lot of family rivalry also going on at the time. So we don't know what Grant's mental state was about his business family. Grant, we never know what his mental state is at any time. I mean, he's, he's you know, uh, the famous picture of him taken after the after the Battle of of uh, Cold Harbor where he's leaning up against a post. I mean, you can see somebody who's like thinking like, what the hell did I just, what, what just happened to me? Mm-hmm. But he's also clearly looks very confident, looks like he's thinking, okay, uh, I just had a big setback. How do I get past this? Mm-hmm. You know, the most, the most uh, horrific day in American military history. Mm-hmm. One of the big Union defeats. Tens of thousands of men left dead on the battlefield. Tens of thousands of men wounded, screaming in hospitals, the stench, the blood, the, the gore. And, you know, we see Grant showing a reaction as if he was losing a chess match. Now, do you feel that Grant was, um, do you feel that Grant knew that his he was well suited for the military and that was kind of his area of strength? Or was he just trying to figure out who he was and what, well, it, what it, it, he should be doing. At this point, Grant knew he was not an Indian fighter. Mm-hmm. He knew he was not a frontier soldier. Mm-hmm. There was no war on the horizon. We have, you know, at, at this point, uh, 
the government still saw America basically as an island at the end of the world. Uh, there was no European power threatening us. Uh, China and Japan at the time were completely supine, had no ability to project power beyond their borders. Mexico had been uh, uh, completely crushed. So there was no prospect at all for a military career. So Grant wasn't thinking about that. Grant was mostly thinking, I got four kids. Have to make some money. I got a wife. Yeah, you know, I mean, my father's successful. He's been, he's, my father and Laura are successful. They've both been very kind to me. But uh, maybe he thought he wasn't pulling his weight like he should. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we don't know. Okay, so go into now the political changes and what happened with the Galena Regiment and how, how the kind of war situation started amping up a bit. So, um, and what year is this? During, during the early 1850s, okay. uh, we saw the collapse of the Maine Misery Compromise. Mm -hmm. 1820, Maine entered the state, the Union as a, as a free state to permit Missouri to enter as a slave state and maintain the balance mm -hmm. of slave free state mm -hmm. representation in the Congress. Mm -hmm. The boundary of slavery, the northern boundary of slavery, if you know, you think of projecting the Mason-Dixon line across the continent to the west coast, the, the boundary of slavery was moved significantly north because nearly all of Missouri is north of the Mason-Dixon mm -hmm. line. So uh, Kansas, uh, the abutting state or abutting territory back then to the west of Missouri mm -hmm. uh, was suing for statehood. And, or petitioning, I guess I should say, for statehood. And there was a, a, an extreme controversy about how many states would come in, because it was the Kansas-Nebraska territory, how many states would come in, whether they would come in as slave or free. And the, 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 the slave advocates felt that they had to continue the expansion of slavery west to maintain their political power in Washington and to maintain the economic viability of the institution. The Northerners uh, saw that if they could contain slavery to what we would now <coughs> view as the southeastern United States, mm -hmm. they would eventually gain the upper hand in the Congress. Uh, they'd eventually gain the upper hand in the population. and slavery confined to the southeastern quadrant would eventually collapse of its own weight due to the economics of, of the situation. So the, the, the stakes in Kansas were very high. So uh, northern people and southern people <coughs> were rushing to Kansas. Uh, southern uh, pro-slavery raiders were coming over from Missouri, mm -hmm. the, the neighboring state. Mm -hmm. And basically uh, terrorizing the uh, the free soil or anti-slavery uh, factions in Kansas. Okay, and so what is the how does this affect the Galena Regiment? So well, we're we're st we're, st we're still moving towards the Galena Regiment. So uh, what we saw here was was the 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 uh, devolution from very very intense political rivalries into armed conflict. Okay. So we see that the, 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 the 
predecessor. And this is basically happening on the frontier. This is happening on the western frontier. Okay. So, so we're seeing the change from a political struggle into an armed struggle. Sure. But so, notice it happens at first. It happens in the less civilized areas of the. Country. Well, it happened on the frontier. Yeah. You know, and and in you know in one specific area. So you know, if you look at the map of Kansas today, it's basically the the area in northeastern Kansas. Okay. So, so uh, they basically got that under control, but it was you know a, a major issue in the Lincoln Douglas debates. So uh, Lincoln Douglas debates more or less set out the political and cultural terms that they used in uh, the, the slavery debate. Is I mean, this 56 or 58? 58. So, so two northern, two northern candidates, mm -hmm. both from Illinois, mm -hmm. a Democrat and a Republican. Mm -hmm. uh, Douglas being the Democrat, Lincoln being the Republican. Uh, Lincoln struggling to figure out what the message was because people were extremely prejudiced back then, mm -hmm. and uh, Douglas hit him during one of the debates with uh, all sorts of nefarious terminology about Lincoln's pro. Uh, pro-black attitudes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lincoln, to his, uh, in, in my opinion, to his dishonor, oh, discredit, uh, basically evaded it. Evaded it, or, or even just you know said no. That's not what I mean. You know, I don't have to have anything to do with Negroes for them to be able to support themselves. Okay. So he took kind of a segregationist uh, attitude. Okay. Um, Grant at this point was was probably still a Democrat. We think, or he thinks, he he, he couldn't really recall, but he seemed to think he had voted for Buchanan in the 1856 election, mm -hmm. the Democrat. So 1860 election comes and, along. And Buchanan is the pro is a pro slave Democrat. Uh, Buchanan was a um, pretty much what we would call, or what they would have called, a um, local determination. I mean. Uh, states' rights, not states' rights, but he thought that the, the people in the territory should should vote mm -hmm. and decide. And what state was he from again? Uh, Buchanan was from Pennsylvania, okay. but he escaped most of the debate because he was the minister or the ambassador <coughs> of the United Kingdom. Okay, uh, during the worst part of this, so he 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 was kind of a tabula rasa. So nobody really knew his his okay. His, his so views. so speed it up a little bit and get us to Galena so we can. So eighteen sixty election Lincoln Lincoln is elected uh, in a, a four way election. Yeah. Uh, minority. Uh, you mean he wins the primary in a four way election? Yeah, he won. He won the, the plurality. Okay. And he uh, took all the northern states, so he had a clear electoral college majority. So. Uh, Back then, the president was inaugurated in March, like the beginning of spring. Oh, he won the. I'm sorry. He in 1860. It was a four-way primary, four-way general. Four-way general. Oh, okay. So, um, so Lincoln, Lincoln was elected, uh, and there was a very long interregnum. There was a very long period between the election and the uh, inauguration. November to of March. March. November to March. Yeah. So four months. Sixty to sixty-one, right? Yeah, 1860 was the election, right. uh, 1861 and was the election. And something happened during this time. So, yeah, something pretty big happened. Uh, they had a, a uh, convention in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, seven states seceded from the Union. Okay. They refused to accept the Lincoln government, said, uh, we're out. Okay. And so there was a, a, a bit of uh, 
deliberation uh, Virginia Maryland Delaware Kentucky mm-hmm. Missouri all were uh, hemming and hawing about whether they should secede or they should stay in the Union and as it uh, as it occurred Virginia was the one part of those states which uh, decided to secede um, this this greatly enhanced the viability of the South. Virginia was fairly, uh, compared to the rest of the South, fairly industrialized, uh, wealthy. Uh, the Virginians okay. in Congress were had a high degree of prestige, so suddenly the secession looked like something that could happen. Um, the Confederates, or the secessionists as I prefer, fired on Fort Sumter, mm-hmm. a federal fort in uh, Charleston Harbor. Uh, Lincoln called up the the militias, federalized uh, seventy five thousand militias. Actually, back then he had asked the governors, but the governors provided seventy five thousand men. And Grant, uh, with uh, Congressman Elihu Washburn, uh, took over a regiment in his hometown of Galena. Oh, okay. I thought not. Washburn, Eli, what's his name? Elihu Washburn. Yeah. Was he from Illinois? He was. He was the House of Representatives member from Galena, which is northwestern Illinois. Okay, and he was a close friend of Grant, or a trusted Grant. Uh, he liked Grant. Uh, I don't understand quite how the relationship between them worked, but but you know back then. Uh, patronage was still a big deal. Um, Washburn saw Grant as a, you know, trained West Point grad. Said, "I need, I need to have a regiment. I need to have some some pull in the army for my standing in Congress." And he he pushed Grant. He up was to, a U.S. congressman. Or? Yes, okay. federal federal representative. All right. So then Grant all of a sudden goes from selling firewood basically to well selling working in the tannery. Oh, working in the tannery, right. Working in the tannery to all of a sudden uh, being in charge of a, of a regiment. Right. And w- tell me about the success or failure. Well, they were, they, it, was, it was rather electrifying. <coughs> Grant took over the regiment. And how, many, how many, let me ask another question. About Grant, at Grant's level of leadership, how many, let's say, Grants were there at this time taking over regiments? Very few. Very few. Um, West Point classes were were relatively small, so there weren't a lot of military officers around. Um, a number of the others, uh, we think of uh, Stonewall Jackson, uh, William William T. Sherman, George B. McClellan, for three examples. Um, Jackson was teaching mathematics at. Uh, uh, Virginia University that had an ROTC program. Um, he came back, became a general right off, essentially. Um, Sherman had been in banking and at the time was the president of a university in Louisiana, mm-hmm. came right back, uh, took a major command. Mm-hmm. McClellan was a highly successful railroad executive. Uh, 
uh, had been chief engineer, was now the president or the CEO of a, of a big railroad in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he came back in, in, a, in a major command. So these three came in already high profile. Grant was not didn't have that level of success. He gets put in in, in charge of a much smaller unit called a regiment. How big? A, how many people was he in charge of? Well, uh, so military units are basically organized in threes. Mm -hmm. So the smallest unit being the platoon, mm -hmm. being about forty men. Mm -hmm. Three platoons make a company, mm -hmm. so one hundred and fifty or so, because mm -hmm. there's special weapons and command sure. personnel, administrative personnel. Three companies make a battalion, so now we're up to about 1,200. Mm -hmm. um, three battalions to the regiment, three regiments to the brigade, three brigades to the, to the division, which is the first self-sufficient unit, and then uh, typically two divisions to a corps. Core, okay. So that was, that was the, the basic command. So he's in a regiment. So, so he's, he's kind of in the men? middle. Is that 1,000 men in a regiment? Uh, probably around that. And uh, Grant, unlike the others, the others were more or less put in a position higher than Grant, uh, put in a position where they weren't really in contact with the soldiers. I mean, general officers, I mean, they'll review the troops, they'll make exhortations. Uh, but being a general is more uh, an administrative and engineering yeah, strategic type. type. Right. Whereas with Grant, uh, Washburn saw something in him, and right from the beginning, you know, Grant was engaged in, in recruiting men, he was engaged in training them. I mean, uh, right, right at the beginning, Grant was engaged with the soldiery. You know, and, and it was his personal magnetism okay. with the soldiers. And, and at that point, he met John Rollins, who was an attorney in, um, in Galena. Mm -hmm. And Rollins became Grant's adjutant. So basically, Grant was the executive, Rollins was the administrator, mm -hmm. and this was kind of a match made in heaven. I mean, is without it a good Rollins, cup, bad cup? no, it's 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 more like like Grant is is uh, exercising the command function, thinking through the strategy, mm -hmm. and what's uh, Rollins doing? And Rollins is pushing the papers, you know, oh, making okay. sure all the all the details are in place. Okay, now to, to make the plans. Work. Now in the actual battles or the way the. Um, Regiment actually worked. Grant would fight in the battles directly, or he would. Hold um, you know, this is this is this is this is the highest officer, the the colonel, the colonel in charge of the regiment. It's the highest officer you're going to see. He's going to stand next to the flag. He'll have his sword drawn. Mm -hmm. Around the flag will be couriers because they didn't have radios. You know, so if you want to tell somebody something on the battlefield, mm -hmm. you had to send you know somebody to run over there. Or ride over there on a horse and tell him. Um, they, they also, you know, with the flag and everything, this is how the, the couriers recognized where the, where the commander was. And then they had the drummers. They had five <coughs> or six drummers and five mm -hmm. or six buglers because, again, you know, there were no radios and in the din of battle, you know, people are shouting. So the, the drumming and the bugling was how they communicated the officer, the uh, the orders. So Grant was in the battle, but he may not have been actually uh, fighting. He's more organized. Well, he would be standing... Like a quarterback. He would, he, yeah, pretty much. And um, Grant would be riding on horseback the whole time, which we know he's very gifted at. Right. He wouldn't be on foot. Uh, not unless his horse got killed. Okay. Now, what? real quick, before we get into... Sh I want to go into next... Um, 
just about a minute in on Henry and Danielson, and then let's try to get the battles Shiloh, Vicksburg, and Chattanooga knocked out by uh, in the next maybe 10 minutes or okay. so. But I want to ask, um, just give a quick maybe 30-second rundown on the weapons that these um, units were equipped with, the regiments, and who exactly, where, like Grant's army starts out in Illinois, they go where, they and they're facing against, are they facing against frontiersmen? Who okay. are they facing? All right. So, uh, rifles, cannons, they have two ends. They have the muzzle, where the bullet comes out. They have the breech where the trigger is, the hammer, all the uh, all the mechanical parts that help you fire it. So now most weapons are breech loading, which means you put the bullet in the back. And and you know the modern metallurgy, we can do that because the, the metals can with we have the hinges and everything, so that you can open a breech and put the ammunition in, close the breech, and it will withstand the. Uh, concussion of the bullet right mostly it's it's the shell casing that withstands the concussion okay. of the bullet so back then they they didn't have breech locks that could permit a soldier to put the ammunition in the back end of the weapon okay. so they basically poured the powder into the into the into the muzzle mm -hmm. and whether it was a cannon which is a big gun, mm -hmm. an artillery piece, you know, which fired, you know, a cannonball maybe the size of a man's head or mm -hmm. the size of a man's fist. Mm -hmm. Or they had muskets which fired basically a 50 caliber round, which is a half inch diameter round. Mm -hmm. And they, they poured in the gunpowder. Sometimes they, t they uh, put paper on top of it, they had these little papers that they would use and they tamp it down so it was nice and tight so it would explode and not just, you know, burn out and fizz, you know, mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. bang. And then they put the uh, they put the ammunition in on top of that, and then they pick it up, and they pull back they what they call the hammer. It was a, a big piece looks kind of like a thumb and a hand connected. It's on a hinge. You pull it back, and it clicks into place. And then the trigger would release the catch that holds back the hammer. The hammer would go forward. It had a piece of uh, well, it was metal. And then there was a flint uh, where the hammer would hit. So the hammer would, the steel hammer would strike the flint mm -hmm. and create a spark. Mm -hmm. The spark would fall into a hole, or, or there was a little powder around the hole. That would ignite, and that would ignite then the powder in the gun, mm -hmm. and that would fire the gun. Mm -hmm. If it was a cannon, they had a fuse. They actually had a fuse, and they stuck it in a hole, and it burned down and ignited the powder and shot the gun. So it, it, it probably took a skilled musketeer probably could fire three three per minute. Okay. And he was very vulnerable because these rifles stood up about almost to the to the height of a man's chin, certainly to a man's collarbone. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't bend it. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't load it like uh, horizontally. I mean mm -hmm. you actually had to stand it up. Mm -hmm. And pour in the powder. So yeah, there were characteristic wounds in the Civil War to the to the right forearm, the right hand, from men having to hold up a powder horn and pour the powder in, into the gun. You know, they could get behind something, but they their hands were were exposed or their elbows were exposed. So there were these very characteristic wounds to so the, the hands. So the bayonet is at least as useful a weapon as the so the, 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 the bayonet had a ring at, had a ring at the end, and you stuck it onto the onto the end of the uh, to the end of the piece 
um, the, the ring on the bayonet wrapped around the muzzle of the, uh, of the rifle, of the musket. And then there was a, a, a knob on the underside of the musket where, again, there was a catch in the bayonet handle so you could push it down on that and catch it. But there were very, very few bayonet fights because the, 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 the mass musketry, I mean, back then the, the, the commands were about lining up lining uh, so that there were gaps in the line. So they would have like three lines. One line would be firing, the second line would reloading. be finishing the loading, the third line would be loading. So the first line would fire and they'd begin the loading process. The second line by now has finished their firing. They'd step forward, they'd step forward in the front, uh, lower the weapons, fire. By now the third line has finished their their loading process, so they step forward and they fire. So, so there is almost continuous Jeez. fire. In a way, it sounds like a really bad game of dodgeball. It's, 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 that's that's a good comparison. And because who knows if you're going to be hit? It's not necessarily skill that keeps you from being hit because you have to go in at a time. You know, it's not like you have a choice. It's a very predictable kind. No, of No, and you're just standing there in front of them. Sounds real brutal. And the the, the British army, uh, at the time of, the, of our Revolutionary War, uh, thought it was immoral to aim the piece. Okay. So you pointed it. You know, it's just you know you had it. You had your musket. You knew where the enemy were. They were they were out there in front of you somewhere. So you just brought it into position and you did, pointed it in their direction and you shot. Did Napoleon's army aim aim their weapon? Uh, I don't think it was until really like the Boer War. They started training men to actually like uh, pick a target. And what's that turn of the twentieth century? Yeah, uh, there, there, there were units in the American army in the Revolution where they were they were actual marksmen, Morgan's uh, Morgan's uh, Rangers. Were they being one? And they they shot British officers. I mean, they, they deliberately shot the drummers and the officers. Were they considered immoral? They were considered complete renegades. I mean, the British would execute them if they captured them. They, they considered that assassination. Okay. They did not consider that War. legal warfare. Okay. And, all right, uh, one other point on that. The, just, again, the difference between a musket and a rifle is the spin, Is the spiraling in the... Well, uh, a musket can be rifled. Uh, there's, there's spiral grooves in the, in the rifle barrel okay. that force the projectile to spin which when it leaves makes the right which which yeah i mean it's just like you know th throwing a basketball compared to throwing a football you know the quarterback puts a spin mm -hmm. on the football mm -hmm. okay let's go and tell me about henry and donaldson so uh kentucky and tennessee obviously they start in the east and then they stretch west to like the Mississippi River, which we tend to consider the uh, boundary between the East and the West in the United States. And uh, the Kentucky is bounded from Ohio, Indiana, Illinois by the Ohio River. Uh, in Tennessee, there's two big rivers, the, the Cumberland and the Tennessee. So the, the Ohio tributaries start like around the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. And then it goes out, out to um, the uh, Mississippi at Cairo, Illinois. So the whole northern tier of states can communicate along the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. 
Similarly, the Cumberland of the Tennessee provided <coughs> uh, very good transport uh, avenues in, in Tennessee to the Mid-South. So they, they were critically important to protect. Lincoln was born in Kentucky, as was Jefferson Davis. Uh, Mrs. Lincoln was from Kentucky. She still had relatives there. So Lincoln felt like he could handle the political situation and keep Kentucky in. The Kentucky government was split. Governor tended to be more pro-Southern. The legislators tended to be more pro-Union. And they basically made the uh, announcement that as long as you leave us neutral, we'll stay out of this. We won't join either side. Uh, Confederates or secessionists made the mistake of attacking Kentucky. Oh, okay. And uh, building building these forts. Grant saw the opportunity to take control of these whole river systems, the Ohio, the Cumberland, mm -hmm. Tennessee. And, you know, he, he had a very logical mind. I mean, he was one of the few military personnel uh, at the time who could look at the map and think, oh, look at these rivers. If I can control them, I can control the whole middle of the country. You know, most of them would look at maps and they'd think, oh, you know, here's a road, here's a hill, here's a bridge. You know, how do I move my men through this country? Where where can I set up supply depots? Mm -hmm. um, what sort of crops are there there to feed my troops if we're marching through? You know, and Grant knew those things, but he also saw the strategic importance of these rivers. And Donaldson and Henry were strong points that protected the Tennessee and the Cumberland. So Grant said, I'm going to get them. And this is probably Grant's leading military attribute. He was extremely active, took the initiative, was, was aggressive in putting his men forward and confronting the enemy. In a reckless way? No. So they met, uh, see, I got to think, was it Henry or Donaldson? He met at Donaldson. Donaldson was badly, was badly sighted. Uh, undermanned. Uh, they made an amphibious uh, attack using riverine uh, gunboats. And here again, you know, Grant had an extremely good relationship with the Admiral, uh, who was in uh, Admiral Porter, who was in charge of that. And Grant recognized, you know, I'm going to be moving my men by water. Uh, there's cannon. On these gunboats that can support my my infantry operations and my amphibious cover my amphibious operations, and he recognized before anybody the importance of inter-service uh, cooperation. Now, all right, and then so he wins the battle. Well, he he captured the two forts, so there were two battles. Okay, and this is where he gained his nickname. You know, uh, they surrounded Donaldson. They asked, you know, what are your terms to surrender? And he said, I propose to move on your works, and I offer unconditional immediate surrender and he became unconditional surrender grant u.s grant unconditional surrender oh okay and became a hero in the northern press really yeah wow all right and um all right good so let's stop there for a minute and we'll go or actually let's let's try to finish out let's try to do um
up to the campaign against Lee. So we have three points that we'll try to hit about in five minutes. So Shiloh, Vicksburg, and Chattanooga. So 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 so, so Shiloh these two was it was forts. a sheer disaster. Yeah, I mean Shiloh. None of these none of these generals had any idea how to march armies for long distances. None of these generals had any idea of how to handle more than a regiment, maybe a brigade. I mean, these are all very young men. You know, uh, we hadn't had a war since the Mexican War, sure. so, you know, we're talking 12, 14 years ago. So so these are, are officers who had, who had fought in Mexico as very junior officers, were now commanding armies. But they had no professional development in the meantime. I mean, maybe they built railroads, maybe they worked in banks, maybe they taught, but they weren't commanding large bodies of men. Yeah, they might have had a little theory from West Point, but that's not the same as being out there with, you know, and the the men. expert who they were teaching at the time at West Point was a man named Jomini, who was one of uh, Napoleon's marshals. Oh, okay. Who had written a number of books about tactics, mostly about uh, uh, artillery placing. Uh, but in in the age of mass-produced musketry, in the age of the railroad, in the age of the of the armies, <coughs> the size the Napoleonic army, Napoleonic armies were maybe roughly roughly comparable in in masses of men, but they were utilized much closer. The command structure uh, was more based on aristocracy, so it was more natural for the troops to defer to the officers. Mm -hmm. So, so Germany's tactical ideas didn't really apply. Mm -hmm. Plus, there was a lot of rivalry among these generals mm -hmm. because they hadn't been in combat together. You know, they had maybe you know one got promoted in May. The other one got promoted in April, mm -hmm. so the one in April was considered senior. The one who got promoted in May, but that really didn't decide the question of who knew what he was doing, how well he did. And the Confederate um, Confederate leadership was split between Johnston and Beauregard when they attacked uh, Shiloh. Sherman was. Uh, one of the divisional commanders. There were three divisions, and for whatever reason, you know, I, I, I think it's pretty uh, it's pretty big oversight, uh, an almost unforgivable oversight on on Sherman's part. They didn't fortify. They didn't put up. The, you know, they encamped. Uh, they didn't send out scouts. And so the Confederate Army was able to attack them uh, on a Sunday morning without any preparation, without any defense on the Union Army's part. Uh, what saved them was the Confederate generalship was split, and instead of massing the army and attacking in one mass, they came in successive waves. Mm -hmm. So every general in the Confederate Army could, could uh, command one of the waves. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was basically the only thing that saved the Union soldiers at, at Shiloh. Grant wasn't there. Grant was uh, somewhere eight or nine miles away uh, negotiating with the Navy. Mm -hmm. 
to uh, bring up troops. Rosecrans was a two or three day march away. They were moving towards the same place. Uh, so essentially it was a Sunday, you know, Pearl Harbor was on a Sunday, yeah. Shiloh was on a Sunday. So the, the soldiers were reading, getting ready for church, you know, just generally loafing around. And Confederates came blasting out of the woods. What's, is it in Pennsylvania? Um, Tennessee. Tennessee, okay. And, yeah. okay. Go ahead. All right, so that, uh, and I think they lost a lot of men, more than it may be. It was, it, in, in, I mean, there was, there was a huge slaughter. I mean, the, 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 the Union soldiers were in camp, you know, eating breakfast, but cooking, I, drinking I, coffee. Yeah. And the Confederates attacked the camp and basically forced them out of their own camp. Some of them grabbed their weapons. A lot of them just ran away. Sure. Uh, so uh, uh, units farther behind were able to organize uh, defense, kind of defense. You know, and then they, you know, they had this famous battle in a sunken road, and uh, you know, the Confederates just didn't understand warfare either, and charged directly into the teeth of the Union defenders and. You know, like you mentioned, you know, they just stood there, you know, in this game of murderous dodgeball, you know, and, and uh, just I heard they lost maybe more, there was more Americans that died in Shiloh than in all of the revolution or right. something? Right, on, on the first day of Shiloh, there were more killed in action than in all the American wars wow. up to that point. All right, so then tell me about Vicksburg. Well, and then Grant came and organized the defense mm -hmm. and, you know, made the famous statement, well, we got whooped today. We'll whoop them tomorrow. Yeah? Yeah. Jeez. And I mean, in, in the, in the driving rain under a big oak tree, you know, he's standing there in council with his generals, you know, and, and Sherman was, was, was despondent, you know, he said, I really fucked up, you know. Yeah, and, sure. And Grant said, you know, don't worry, you know, we got whooped today, we'll whoop them tomorrow. Wow, unbelievable. And, the, and, and then Vicksburg, is that another, is that so, an ensuing battle? So, um, Shiloh established the Union control over over these rivers, mm -hmm. so they now could operate along the interior rivers going east, but the Confederates still control the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So Admiral Farragut attacked New Orleans and took New Orleans. So now we control the Mississippi from the north to Vicksburg, which is in Mississippi, where Mississippi is across from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And then from uh, New Orleans up, we could basically navigate the Mississippi. But the Confederates had that stretch where they controlled the river, so we couldn't use the Mississippi as the north-south route of transcontinental communication and transportation that we had before. So we had to take Vicksburg. Mm -hmm. And Vicksburg is on this big bluff. Mm -hmm. and. There's another river, the Yazoo River, so it's it's almost like it's a bluff on an island. It's on more of a peninsula, but it's it's it like sticks out into the Mississippi. It's very high, and you know they could shoot down onto onto sh ships or boats in the in the Mississippi. The Mississippi is really big there. You know, it's over two miles wide. So, but they they had long range guns and. You know, it's, that's a narrow spot, and they could control the, the currents. There's a bend, so there's currents and everything, so they could control uh, the Mississippi from that point. So Grant had to take it. 
So they, they fought this campaign that went from like uh, February to like July. And they tried mining, you know, which means, you know, digging trenches, underground trenches and sneaking up to mm -hmm. it. And they tried attacking it from the east, they tried attacking it from the west, they tried attacking it from the other side of the river and crossing the troops on, on the water. Um, and eventually they uh, besieged Vicksburg and subjected it to like a 90-something day siege. During the siege, of course, there was cannonading. And yeah, there, you, you can read a lot of the civilian accounts, you know, they ran out of food about 25 days in. Um, they had to live in uh, in caves. They had to dig like cellars. They called it living in caves because of the cannonading. Uh, and on Fourth uh, of July, eighteen sixty-three, same day that we won the Battle of Gettysburg, Vicksburg surrendered, and uh, Lincoln gave the famous message. You know, now the Mississippi rolls unvexed to the sea. Mm. Uh, Pemberton was the Confederate commander. He lost something like forty thousand men. Wow! You know, in surrender. Wow! And you know, back then, you know, basically they didn't put him in prison of war camps. They said, you know, you're not going to fight us again, right? And the guy said, No, I won't fight you again. And they let him go. But he was a non-combatant after that. He would, you know, most of the most of them were dependable. It wouldn't uh, join up. Wouldn't again. join up again. And to this day. They don't celebrate the Fourth of July. Wow! In Vicksburg, Mississippi. Wow! All right, and finally we we'll do Chattanooga, and that'll bring us into the. So Chattanooga is on the other end of uh, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Vicksburg is in Mississippi, but it's below Tennessee. Memphis is a big city in, in uh, Tennessee, just Vicksburg <coughs> on the Mississippi. Chattanooga is on the other end, over by Georgia. Mm -hmm. So um, they needed to control Chattanooga's big rail center. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Union lines were overextended, getting uh, the army into uh, Chattanooga. And the Confederates were able to surround them. And there was what, like one rail line in. And the uh, Union army was, was being starved in submission the same way the army had been starved in submission at Vicksburg. Mm -hmm. And Grant figured out the logistics to keep the army supplied, to bring up reinforcements, and uh, got the command structure to the degree that he had a general who was, who was willing to take the battle to the Confederates, and uh, basically saved the army from starvation, restored their self-confidence, reinforced it, and then uh, the local commander staged it, but you know, uh, they submitted a plan to Grant, and the local commander staged a, a breakout plan, which worked brilliantly and destroyed the, the Confederate forces in the air and forced them to drop back into Georgia. Okay. All right. Well, we'll end there with the episode, and then we're going to go into, coming up in the next episode, we'll We'll go into um, his, we'll talk a bit about his campaign against Lee, and then we'll go into the nomination of 68, and we'll, we'll begin there. So um, thank you again, and uh, we'll see you oh, next my episode. My pleasure.